my partner in all things story, narrative story and storytelling. And I here we are again. Co-producer, yes, co-producer <laughs> of Story Conversations, our podcast on putting stories to work. Um, episode three. Yeah. Season, season two. two. Wow. Um, <laughs> so our, our guest today is is a fascinating individual. Um, she is a film producer, um, a creator of um, film and documentaries. She started her career in dance, which has informed some of her creative work. Her name is Lisa Donmall Reeves, and we are going to have a fascinating conversation with her. We are indeed. Let's hear it now. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we're very excited. Me. Yeah, we're very excited about uh, this conversation, um, both for both for different reasons. I'm sure that will become apparent as we as we start talking. So, um, we like to start these conversations, um, as our listeners will know, with sort of talking about your origin story. So, you studied musical theatre at London Studio Centre, and had a you know a good deal of your career as an actor and creative. Um, and now you're an award-winning film producer and creative director. Tell us a little bit about the journey and how that story has, you know, evolved. Um, well, how far back do you want to go? Because I do remember. Even as a child, I was like always dancing. So um, what I then discovered making Uprooted, which we'll get to, is... Um, that you do you, you you're one of the things of communication one of the forms of communication is movement and as a kid you naturally um I would hear music and I would just be I would just dance and perform and and be making up dances on the front lawn and showing my mum and things like that so <laughs> I was always very engaged in that way um then I was very lucky that my parents um exposed me to musical theatre quite early on we were only half an hour train ride into London so they would um take us to London from the I remember from the age of 11 I saw Singing in the Rain at the Palladium <gasps> with Roy Castle and Tommy Steele I saw that too <laughs> did? I did I did and I had that like burnt in my brain and I yeah. remember walking up the street um with my mum and we were just dancing and I I knew that's I was literally like that's what I want to do yeah. There was no question. So from then on, I was, you know, I saw like 42nd Street, um, Drury Lane, and I, all these all these images are so, so vivid for me. And I, there was nothing that was going to take me off that path. And um, one thing about me is I'm very, <laughs> once I know, I know, and I, I will, that's what I will do. There's literally nothing that will pull me from that path. Um, even though when I was, I think I was about 13, I was already researching um, like dance schools and full-time dance schools and I came across Bush Davies um, that I don't think exists anymore and um, I was like, I want to go there. But and my dad was like, finish your school, then we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I was not happy about that because I, I felt like he was holding me back. Too late, too late. <laughs> I'm, glad. <laughs> I'm glad I had that normal childhood till 16. But even so at 15, I... Um, audition for London Studio Centre and that had been recommended to me by my like local dance school Um, and that was the only one again I'm very clear I I did my research that was the only one that only college that I auditioned for I didn't apply for anywhere else (laughs) which was like that's the only place I want to go it looks like fame Um, that's where I want to go and um (laughs) So, because I bought into all that, and I was 15 when I auditioned, because I auditioned right at the school year, so like November time, and then I wouldn't go until the following September. So I still had all my academic exams to do at school, and I it was a long day. And my dad was with me, um, and then they tell you on the day, and I was accepted. Um, yeah, and that kind of I and I still remember 15, thinking I was so grown up. And then going at 16, which I'm not sure you can do that anymore. Mm -hmm. This was in, so I auditioned in 87 and I went in 1988. Um, 
so it wasn't a degree course or anything it was just a diploma um so I, I got a piece of paper that probably means nothing <laughs> but i did three years of um, musical theater solid training um and it was i mean it was really broad brilliant training um it was, i was like a sponge i just did every mm. single class possible um for three years and you just work till you know from 8 30 till 6 30. um you, we were allowed back then to create our own timetable and then you have to mm. get a teacher to sign off um and you, they had rules like you had to do ballet every morning and then if you were going to do mathematics which is a jazz isolation technique um then you had to have three of those and then by the third by, by my third year i was in the advanced class so that was came straight after ballet so you had like two hours of ballet and an hour and 45 minutes of that and wow. i mean i'm exhausted thinking about it and, um, <laughs> and then all the other stuff that you kind of schedule in but i was a maniac as in i i saw a lunch break as a waste of time <laughs> I'm not advising anyone to do this. Um, I seriously was just like, oh, I'm just going to work all day. And that's basically what I did. Mm. I mean, they had to slow me down. The teachers had to pull me aside and were like, okay, who signed off on this? (laughs) Because you're crazy. But I just saw this window of time where I had all this information Mm. And that was my time. And that's when technically I I knew I would never be that strong again. And then the experience that you have through work, you gain the other side of it. So you, you kind of, it's kind of that journey of a dancer's and a musical theater performer's life. The more you work, sometimes you, well, your body gets older. Mm but you gain in other ways, you gain in your storytelling, you understand how to perform better and what to pull back and rather than just it being about technique, which were I there was any, were there Well, any it's pic- also the muscle oh, yeah. memory for hard work. Oh, sure. Oh, sorry, Simon, uh, you know, that, that literally that, um, that, that, that instinct you have for working hard towards a goal. I think yeah. it's part of that yeah. training. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that definitely transferred across to, I mean, it's in my DNA anyway, but it's, it, you know, I'm not very good at taking breaks <laughs> still, <laughs> and I'm 50. <laughs> <laughs> I was so, going to yeah, ask, you know, changed what, much. what were the uh, sort of highlights of your creative career when you, when you moved into professional performance? I would say, so... Um, the first two years, so I left college at 19, um, and because I'm I'm 5'10", so I was struggling. All I wanted to do was a musical. Mm. That's all I wanted to do. But at the time, there weren't very, for ensemble anyway, I w- wasn't, yeah. you know, leading lady material at that point. Um, there was no tall, you know, there was no place really for a tall girl unless there were like, Cassandra in Cats. I was too young for Bomb. Um, and then maybe one that Joseph was on at the time. Mm. There might be, you know, Mrs. Potiphar was, but again, I probably was a bit young. So I was finding it really difficult and what felt like forever at mm. that age. Mm. And it took two years. And then I got um, a, a lovely beautiful new kind of musical Christmas show and it was based on the snowman so the cartoon the snowman they did a a Christmas show at the Birmingham Rep so that was when I was 21 and it was like the best that I felt so grateful just because of the time that it seemed to have taken to get there and it was only a short period of time but during that just before that I'd I'd got down to the final for crazy for you because that was coming into town and finally, tall girls, you had to be minimum 5'7". <laughs> but I didn't get it the first time. I saw it at the Prince Edward and was obsessed. And then when they were recasting, because in England, Susan, they do it every year. They Everyone has a year contract. And then you can decide whether you're staying or going. And so a lot of people leave. And you generally can't do more than two years. That's kind of, you can't live leave mid-contract. 
So you always had to, in London, you always knew the contract changes when they were changing. And so you knew to be around. And of course, this changeover was when I was at, in Birmingham Rep and I couldn't, and all our shows were in the day and they were calling me in and I couldn't get there. And I even spoke to Bill Alexander, the lovely um, director of The Snowman, begging him, but we didn't have swings. No. I was begging him. So I couldn't go. So they had to cast someone else. And then, which I was devastated, I get back to London and they called me in because they were losing someone mid-rehearsal. And so I went in with another girl. It was just me, Stro, Jay Alexander, Nigel West in, in Erdang, the old Erdang building, which is now the Dang, because um, they've just <laughs> rebranded. Um, and we uh, just 15 minute audition. She did something, some, she checked certain things. I sang. And I remember as I started singing, Jay Alexander, the music director, just turned and kind of did this nod. And I didn't think anything of it. And then the next day I was working in this bar and uh, I get a phone call. Because this is pre-mobile phone as well, pre-cell. <laughs> so they rang the, the landline of the bar. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I found out and I started the next day. Amazing. amazing. Oh my God. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and I had ten days rehearsal. They were already like in their third week. So I was thrown yep. in. But, a... yeah. but it was my dream show. So I was just that's I stayed with that for years. Did two years in t- town, then it closed, and then I did the tour. That's amazing. Yeah, very special and then, time. And then obviously when when did you transition into film then? Was that quite was that later on? Was that what yeah, a lot later. I didn't have any interest in film, bizarrely. Yeah. Um, I was all about theatre. I just, the, probably because I was still in it um, and performing and um, just loved, yeah, just loved the community. And mm. um, yeah, I, I was just, yeah, I was all about musical theatre. And then it, I moved to New York um, in 2012 continued theatre but it was in New York that I knew actually it was if I'm really honest with myself I had the kind of gnawing of I think I'm done with performing in theatre but I worked so hard for my green card and to get to New York that was like no 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 (laughs) just ignore that thought and I like suppressed it carried on um and it, it was probably four years three five no three and a half four years in that I hit my wall and that's when I just was like you know what I'd love to start creating my own work and I'd just done a an on-camera course with Heidi Marshall and she's brilliant she's in New York and um and that kind of piqued my interest and I started to do some um more tv uh um auditions and I was like wow these are actually fun they don't take all day they're much you know I I wasn't as judgmental of myself because um by then because I had such an established career in England that coming to New York I had a lot of um demons and of what I wasn't good enough and um yeah I gave myself a much harder time and yet with film I, I felt a bit freer uh and then I just yeah I just hit my wall I love New York but it, it was um tough but I also think it was the universe going okay you're done move on to something else you've got more to offer so um and that's when I had a conversation with Ben it was an April time a friend's mutual friend's birthday party in 2016 and said you know I'm thinking of starting my own production company just to create work I know so many people that are so creative and um that don't get a chance I just want to you know that's and he and and he just said I I've got something that I've been wanting to do for a long time and he showed me a rehearsal clip a filmed rehearsal clip of part of early morning with Bahia and another dancer um I do apologize to that other dancer because I don't remember and they'd done that in um when they were together in Little Mermaid on Broadway they had a hiatus or something I think there was a strike so they created this beginning of early morning and I saw it and I was like, wow, that's beautiful. And 
I know dance and I don't, I've never made a film before, but I, and Ben was very clear and Ben's theatre person, Ben was very, very clear that this had to be a film. So, um, yeah, I saw it and, and trusted my gut, which is what I do most of the time is no, this, this is, this is right. Uh, and I think if for the, my first film, I wanted it to be dance cause I knew I knew dance so well. I'd had decades in it, so I was like, "Yeah, I know this will be this will be beautiful if we get the right team," and that's kind of how um, that all started. And it, it's uh, yeah, and I kind of would. So I've learned on my feet. I have not been to film school. Mm. I, I created my own show reel as an actor, and it was actually during that the he the guy that was filming it and helping me put together he gave me the call sheet and I was listed as the producer because obviously I'd pulled everything together. I'd rehearsed it. I'd pay for it. Mm. I'd done this. <laughs> I was just like, well, I did that. I've done that before because I had my own one woman show in England in the theater and I produced it, but I didn't really feel that I was, I didn't know that's what I was doing. Mm. I thought everyone right. had that instinct and that skill set, Um, and apparently not that's what I've been told anyway. So I, I I just, I see something that I want to do and I just get it done. Um, and sometimes it's scrappy, which I don't like because I'm learning on my feet, but then you're better the next time. And that's basically, I would say how my film career has gone. Mm. I would also say I'm very, very, very lucky for the people that I've been surrounded by kind of mentors and collaborators that have known or ha where I've come from. I'm a quick learn like Matt Simpkins, my, um, he's been my cinematographer for nearly all my films. Um, at the beginning he did early morning. So he came from dance. So I kind of knew, and his pitch was brilliant. Ben and I were just like, yes, absolutely. He knew how to film dance in a way that we wanted it to be filmed rather than just locked off you know, proscenium kind of boring. Um, no offense to anyone that does that. Um, and yeah, he slowly would be, <laughs> I, I still ask him questions where I'm like, so <laughs> he kind of translates it because he's like, so it means this. And I'm like, okay, great. Um, so that's kind of been my own, I kind of created my own film internship mm. for myself while, while creating content. Wow. Interesting. So, um, you know, you, you talk about the time that you were producing your one woman show, you know, but not really kind of knowing that not everybody has that skill set. Um, the role of a producer in film is, is a bit different from the role of a producer in a play. You know, I, I think of producers in live performance often is just the money people but maybe you can explain to our audience you know this whole idea of a film producer basically being in charge of wrangling everything you're you you're an orchestra conductor you're you're the the general or, or the the admiral you're 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 probably having to be mother superior sometimes yeah. um and then the <laughs> The evangelist, of course, when you're trying to get distribution for a film. I mean, that this, this, explain to us maybe the breadth of the role of a producer yeah. in films. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so, it can go generally, especially if it's my own like uh, production company's baby or project. Um, you go from conception, development, developing the script, then either if you you can either do that with the director already on board or then you can hire the director. You have your, you basically build your team and then when it, and then you're fundraising. So you're bringing in, uh, raising the funds. And then from that point, um, say you're greenlit and you have the funds, then you have to get the crew, the location, um, deal with those contracts, clear stuff with SAG if it's a SAG project, um, insurance, schedules. Wow. Um, and you trained yourself to do this. This is 
Yeah, only because I had to. I didn't even think about it. I just was, you know, I mean, when it's slightly different in a narrative sense. So when we did, say, early morning, we had the AD, so he would do the schedules. We would talk about it. We would have those production meetings so we knew exactly where we were at. But then they do that. For the documentary, I did everything. So, but that also may be because we were, it was a small team and it was a low budget um I say low budget we started low budget we didn't end up spending low budget in my head um uh so yeah then I would then do the schedules and the call sheets and book the locations um contact all the talent or experts contributors so no lunch breaks in that process either. <laughs> yeah, and then you do the budget, so you've done the budget, so you're kind of trying to manage that. Again, for a documentary, the budget is ever moving, which mm. is stressful in itself, but I've now learned that that's kind of how it is because of the nature of a documentary. Sometimes you're like, well, we ha-, you know, we you only think you're going to film for this much and then something comes up that you have to get and so you have to find more money to so that kind of shifts documentary world narrative you have the script you can break that down you have a shooting schedule unless something comes up and in a covid world it may do where you have to add days or you know replace cast or locations then that might but you should have a contingency really for that so they're the differences and then you see it through post so um i mean bigger productions obviously have post production supervisors and all that business but um as a small company as we are you kind of i've just kind of done that i still see it as managing the Mm. the one thing that you are is um you're making sure that you uh fulfill the director's vision so I always see, and I heard this from um, on a podcast that you. I always look at it as I work for the film because everyone, what no matter what, we want the film to succeed. We want the best film. We want the best product, and we want the best version of the film. So I always look at myself as working for the film. So you can't get your ego involved, and then you have to be calm on set. You have to come up with solutions if there's stress try and um understand why and then find that solution uh so it's a solutions based and i'm a very optimistic glass half full person so i will always be like well that's fine because that was meant to happen so let's see what we can do and then you you flip it on its head not all the time because i'm not that good but um you know there's days where i also have bad days and a meltdown and even last week, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just going to go somewhere and be employed and they could pay me. Um, but yeah, so that that's kind of, I guess, I'm not the money person. I have to try and find the money and find play- ways to fund the film, fund our vision. And also be the bad guy because you're always the one going, we can't afford that. There's literally, as in an independent filmmaker, you're constantly going, I don't think we can afford that, which is horrible. I hate it because I'm a creative and I want to have, I also want to have the best product. So I'm like champagne taste beer money, which is uh, (laughs) uh, annoying. It's interesting that that's. The, the themes you just talked about there is a, was a big theme in season one for us about collaboration and the importance of collaboration in storytelling. And I imagine, you know, in film, your uh, experience in musical theatre was good training for that because a musical is absolutely probably one of the most collaborative art forms. I've learned that firsthand where, you know, as a, as a musical theatre composer, walking in with my big fat ego to, and then having to completely release it through the actual production process and going, <laughs> yeah, this is, no, this is not mine, it's ours. And we have to learn to do that. It's a really big yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and another thing that came out in season one of our podcast was this whole idea of the inspiration of limitation, which is mm. that, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know that champagne taste beer beer budget um you know when you have a limitation that suddenly can unleash creativity in terms of how you solve it and i kn- i know firsthand 
that you are a ninja in terms of those <laughs> those literally moments where you say, well, this was meant to happen, so let's, you know. Yeah, what can we do about it? Okay, uh, there's I mean, there is always... I, there is always a way. I mean, I couldn't have survived in, you know, I'm 50. I wanted to do, I've been a creative since really I went to college at 16 because I was working, like doing modeling and stuff before that. And you just think I've never really had a normal job ever. And yet I'm still here. I still pay my bills and my taxes and <laughs> <laughs> somehow surviving um and and grateful and proud of that because obviously I've had support along the way but it's um it's not an easy path but I couldn't have done it and I couldn't have done anything else I don't think mm-hmm. so many of your films are rooted in dance or are about dance you know I, I use the word rooted obviously for the obvious reason that the that you know uprooted the journey of jazz dance was uh, I, I watched it recently as a fantastic film streaming on hbo max currently in the u.s is it available in other markets and around the world it's currently being um uh sold so it's um we have brilliant international sales um agents that are you know going to the film markets and mm. um, talking to a lot of people so I, I'm keen for it to be in the UK. Um, yeah. If someone would like to contact Kaleidoscope, <laughs> I was, they, can, well, I was, they can talk to them about it. Um, I just wanted to recommend it to people and I, I can't. Cause... I know, it's very frustrating, <laughs> especially for our two other two creatives. So Kadifa Wong and Zach Nemerin. Um, Kadifa's the director and Zach, I, me and him used to teach at Millennium Performing Arts. Oh. Um, he's still there, he's head of dance, but... Um, he he had the initial idea, went to Kadifa, and then they both came to me. Um, they obviously they're both in London, so mm. as is our editor uh, of Uprooted. So you just I, for uh, more than anything, I want them to be able to you know shout yeah. about it. And obviously HBO Max is a huge deal, and we're thrilled with it. But it is only for the in the US. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I mean. I, I knew I was going to love the film because I saw that Debbie Allen was in it. And I was like, as soon as I knew that Debbie Allen was in it, I thought, hey, I'm going to be fine. I love everything that woman does. Um, it's, such an, it's such an interesting film because you're telling the history of um, jazz dance. And we'll get into you know, what your relationship is to that. But I wanted to make or ask a question about, I've, I found that, that there is another story quite clearly being told around heritage and attribution that I thought was really important and I was interested it just sort of took me on this little journey of what happens to stories that aren't recorded in some way and that's it was really really powerful to sort of think so many of the stories about the from the history of this of this dance I don't know, form I guess you'd call it were lost because of of the sort of traditional colonialist view of you have to record it has to be um set down and codified in a certain way and I thought it was such a such a great way to tell that story through another medium it was really interesting was that intentional at the start or was that something that evolved um I would say it was we allowed a bit like your podcast we we uh, we wanted the whole making to be a conversation which is why we have so many people in it, which isn't a conventional way to make a documentary mm. either. We, we kind of pushed against that. We didn't want it to be like an, a, the, the usual dance documentary mm. because I never really got through them. I would start watching them and be, you know, a bit bored. So, and I have a, you know, I, I have a very high... <laughs> I get bored really quickly. So if something doesn't engage me, I, okay, I'm turning it off. So I'm quite harsh in that way, which is probably good because then I don't ever want my film to be that, in my opinion. Obviously, art is subjective, so some people won't agree with me. Um, so we started out because Zach's initial uh, like idea and inspiration was like all the all the kind of... All the codifiers, which are white men, mm, are yeah. dying. We're dying, you know, yeah. like Matt Mattox, Luigi, um, Giordano, and so he just said, "We need to, we need to record this. Um, we need to create something." So I 
when they uh, pitched that to me as a producer and production company, I said, I don't think that's enough. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a big enough idea. I don't think you're going to get an audience. I think we should go bigger. And um, they were also inspired by um, Wendy, uh, Wendy Oliver and Lindsay Garino's book, Jazz Dance, The History of the Roots to the Branches, because there aren't many books that kind of address the whole history of jazz dance. So they were inspired by that and they edited that book with lots of different educators. Mm -hmm. So we spoke to them about the book had their blessing and then they connected us to a lot of those experts which is so that was kind of our real historian level and then because of all our history because there's myself Zach Kadifa also changed uh, trained in dance at Studio Center so we were all Studio Center um, alumni at mm -hmm. different times Ooh. I was the eldest and, um, <laughs> and then Matt is also a dancer so we kind of all had that um, connection. So I, I'd work with Susan Stroman. I'd work with Cheetah Rivera, um, the lovely Kim Morgan Green, who's a Fosse dancer in LA. She knew, had worked with Debbie Allen. She's the one that got us Debbie Allen. So it kind of was this amazing community that was just saying, "Oh, you have to speak to this person. Oh, you have to speak to that person." And that's kind of how it evolved. But Kadifa was very clear of, well, I just you kind of started about their history and their connection to jazz and then it, we turned it into a conversation mm -hmm. and then you had a lot of people saying that some some of the same things and you kind of push them in certain directions and then yeah it was uh it was a journey and it was a uh, it was a real learning curve for me because as I started it I was like yeah I know jazz dance I've never made a documentary in my life but yeah. let's do it again gut instinct let's do it even though i was like no let's do the whole history no one's ever done that um now i know why <laughs> yeah. um, so we did we started like that and i don't i'm glad i was naive because i don't think we would have gone into mm. it so bouncy eyed uh, like you know rose tinted but um we yeah we just it just as each person did their interview I was just like wow I don't know anything or I know this much and there was so much but being trained in England there was a huge amount in the late 80s there was a huge amount that I did learn but there was also a lot of information that was not mm. necessarily passed on yeah. like and that's where we want the film to make a difference, really, as in when you are teaching, do do your research and pass that information on. Because the dancers, I was a dancer that was just a sponge. So I was just yeah. learning. So I know I did a Lindy workshop. I know I did an African dance workshop, but no one really talked about any of that history for me to then take away and even just go to the library. Yes, the library and look it up. Yeah. So I just kind of yeah i just was musical theater let's tr train and let's continue dancing whereas there was a huge chunk of information that i wasn't given um so uh we so that's why we aimed to try and give as much information and all but also because it's so dense as a subject um there are moments that's why we did the montages quick yeah for, for to mm -hmm. move through time mm -hmm. um and also to tr hopefully people to go oh i'm gonna look that up because we if we'd have touched on everything one we didn't have the budget and two you just the film would be three hours long yeah i mean we do want to do an episodic but we need someone to kind of green light that so we can go away and do that but that could be easily five six hours you know i, I was just gonna say i think in terms of storytelling i think storytelling is so strong in this film and there's a beautiful example of that which is the moonwalk section where you where you track back the history of who influenced who and just in that it's what 20 seconds it tells yeah, yeah. you the whole idea and i thought that was so smart i loved it yeah I loved it. yeah that's kadifa and joan so joan Amazing. gill amarin who's um who is american but lives in london um she's our editor and mm. kadifa and joan together were just like very cool yeah amazing i have to say and the editor is the magician mm. <laughs> always I and as a non-dancer, you know, I think about, you know, we can read a story with literally alphabet characters on a page, 
we can read a musical score by literally looking at notes on a, a staff, musical staff, on a page. But we cannot really understand dance unless we actually can see it. And, you know, it, we, and you and I have talked in other moments about the significance of depicting the truth of something, right? And it, it feels to me as though this, that you've, you've brought not only the storytelling in your narrative work, but the, the storytelling into this, you know, the idea that a documentary is the truth. Um, I mean, it, 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 as a non-dancer, I feel like I know more about the truth of this because of what you've brought forward in the film. Hmm. Um, is that... Is that what you were aiming for or? Yeah, we wanted to be as unbiased as possible. So we didn't want to, I think there's only one bit that we might have shown our kind of opinion and that's, I won't, that's quite near the end. Um, but we presented what everyone talked about. And so it kind of was like their conversation and we presented it. So you, you, it's not like that. It's not necessarily our opinion. It was more of like, so this person feels this way and this person feels that way because there is definitely opinion within it. You know, some people swear by the codified, um, techniques and I, I, they definitely have relevance because that, that was my training, but I also, you have the, you know, um, the, the, the guys, that, the, the Lindy Hoppers, the authentic jazz, that that was pulled into the studio. So a lot of them don't, you know, there's, but that's the conversation. We wanted it to be a conversation and that's what the conversation needs to, so people are aware of either side. So I think that, um, that was important to us. And just to show the over, the whole arc of it. So you can make your own decision rather than, you know, because it is in the in the edit suite. That's where you could slight to you could edit it together. So you're or and not include stuff that um, on purpose. So you don't show the complete truth. But we showed what we had, which I'm sure you, there are parts where we can go deeper to. Yeah. I think that that moment that it's not it's not a reveal so much as almost the natural conclusion of every piece of evidence you've already given and therefore it's great it's great storytelling show don't tell you've you've shown us everything mm-hmm. and then it's kind of like that moment i'm not going to say what that moment is because I, I agree it's kind of don't don't ruin it it's sort of like yeah you can see why we're having this conversation now fascinating sorry yeah. susan you were going to say yeah. something no no uh you know it, your body of work that you have produced as a as a, a film producer um runs runs the gamut from short film and narrative and and, and then these documentaries but the two films that you talked about initially that were your initial um literally leap off a cliff um were the these the two films early morning um, which was conceived of by by our our mutual friend Ben Hartley, and then a movie called a, another beautiful short film called Free, both of which are not about dance but involve dance. Um, and we've we've talked about how you know you heard the pitch, you you heard the concept, and you were just so drawn to it. Both of them are very different. Um, but what was the through line? What was the connection that, that was so compelling for you? And if you could describe it was the story, it was the heart. It was the, um, so for early morning, it's about love, life and loss. And they're all things that we experience every day, you know, the everyday experience, but it was really about her loss. Um, and how, 
and ha having that vision of him coming back and not being able to let that go because it was such a sudden loss and Ben's choreography and direction just was so moving coupled with the music so um it's not the music that's on Amazon Prime because the, the because we use Solitude um it was too expensive so it was fine for film festival so music rights um are another thing that I've learned lots about um, <laughs> we'll be talking about and, that in a minute I'm sure <laughs> yeah we uh so when we got the quote for you know all rights worldwide I was just Ben and I were like I can't we can't just we haven't got the money so Ben had his friend Colin just compose something that he basically just gave us um so we could at least get the piece out there but you know the ultimate one is the original with the original music it's um, Angela McCluskey's beautiful voice um singing um solitude so if you want to see it just email me and uh, I, will, <laughs> I will send it with the password. <laughs> yeah, and just for our, our, for our listeners, the, the title Early Morning, Morning is spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Yeah. Which... So that's why that connected with me and then Free because it was um, inspired by the, you know, Frederick Douglass story um, and just was... A, an important part of history and how because he was such an important um person in you know I, what's what's mind-blowing now is like we kind of he's probably turning in his grave because we're having to go through the same stuff um that he worked so hard to achieve but again it was the visual when ben described the learning to write in thin air and how that can translate to movement um yeah that kind of I just it was it, again it's the story it's the authenticity of the story and it's the truth and because it was inspired by a true story so that's what attracted me to that but then there's also one other short film I did double exposure that again so each short film I did had more narrative in and less dance and then obviously during that year so that was 2018 that year we um was filming uprooted so that was a completely different entity but so early morning was all dance shot in 2016 and then 2018 when I was filming uprooted on and off um we did free because that was scripted and then had the dance part woven in and then double exposure was shot at the end of that year um that was pretty much all narrative and then had one moment of dance and that's when she's and it was all kind of in this photographer's head and that again was based on truth and it's more of a rom-com um the writer daryl getman and um austin miller daryl is a good friend of mine she a great creative uh she wrote that with austin and she went to austin and when she was dating online dating and you know all the apps and stuff um which she did meet her now husband and they have two beautiful little girls um but all these dates that are kind of the the kind of the core of this little film that they're writing a feature for uh of a practically verbatim like she came because mm. she every time she had a date she was uh, was just blown away about just how absurd or crazy or funny they were so she would just go and write it down and um and that so the dates just cracked me up because i i know that's what daryl went through and they're pretty much word for word and again that because it was funny and I love New York and it was a real New York story about how lonely you can be and and how you're expected to get married, um, which I always pushed against, even though I am married. Uh, my family never thought I would get married. <laughs> That's another story. But um, yeah, that so they've all kind of had their had their moment of dance because it, if it fits and I don't I would never put in. I think as soon as you're shoehorning something and it doesn't fit with the, if you're not telling the story, if it's not there for a reason, it shouldn't be there. So all this, all the stuff that I, all the projects that I take on always have that truth, which is probably why I lean. I never thought I'd be a documentary producer. Um, 
but I also never put boundaries on the work I would take on. It's more about the project and whether I get excited or whether it, if it's a narrative, whether it's a visual, I can visually see it and I'm inspired and um, I know the audience will be excited. It's about that connection with the audience and telling that story and why are you telling that story? What's the why? Um, as Simon Sinek taught me many years ago, <laughs> you know, as long as your why is strong, then you should be, everything should be good. Doesn't I mean, there's no guarantee that anyone's going to buy it or will watch it or think it's good. But um, I think if that's in place, at least you know why you're doing something. So that's, uh, yeah. And I, I, I'm very proud of my body of works so far um, as you should and, be and continue to learn as I as I which is good you know I'm 15 I'm still learning I'm always out of my comfort zone pretty much not always but a lot of the time which is exhausting but also great because I know I'm growing mm. so you know sound is such a critical part of storytelling and film you know it's one of the one of the key elements when when you're working with sound do you start with an idea in mind for the soundtrack like for you're talking about um your your previous early morning was the angela mccluskey track sort of there from the beginning or was it something that you you know, typically fashion after the fact yeah so for ben early morning he was very it always pretty much comes from the director so um for Ben he was very very that he he knew those because actually there's a long version with three songs and he knew um which songs Funny Valentine was one of them um there though then we cut down a shorter version and just used Solitude he was it was more about the lyrics and how the connection and the the music so that's was a sure thing for for early morning for free the music came after Mm. um or while he was in the process of creating he definitely found yeah no he found that track so he could create the choreography um and then we actually i think we replaced it we might have replaced it because of the licensing um we found a better option option that worked um really well for when we um, needed the kind of um in perpetuity or or world Mm. rights and everything um double exposure we had so i learned from all of this double exposure i had a composer so we Ah. got a composer which is the amazing alex lackamore so he is part of um the hamilton and you know in the heights and tick tick boom and all that uh and he's uh known for his orchestrations but he does compose Mm -hmm. and he's because my husband was um part of the hamilton team uh, a few years ago so and actually did bring it on. So that's how he met Lack. And so we basically saw Hamilton very early on. I I um, then kind of just said to Lack, "Oh, do you fancy? You know, would you consider this?" Um, so yeah, he came on board. And and luckily, I mean, he was so busy, and we were in post during the pandemic because Daryl was very pregnant when she when we filmed um a, a double exposures so then 2019 she was having the baby and we she had the baby and then we were editing and then we went into lockdown and we were trying to get alex who was he was very busy then luckily the lockdown happened so he had time um and he composed and so we that film took a bit longer but mm. because then you know you own all the rights you get the music it's beautiful uh you know Lack did such an awesome job, um, as you would expect from <laughs> someone that's won all those awards. Um, so that's where I learned from that one. Uprooted was a different beast because of the history. So you can't, even though we had two composers do two spots, um, how can you, you kind of archive footage of musicals you need mm. that I, I i i believe me i've looked at that film several times because that side of stuff music and archive was a very large chunk of the budget sync, um, sync, sync. Yeah. so and musically it had to be right it had to fit mm. the era you can't we because you know ideally you get a composer and they do the whole thing but this was a very different beast and so we had to just uh and we, we found some options that were that 
that helped us get that price down. Um, but yeah, so each one. And then this other, I'm, I'm doing another documentary right now. We're in post um, called Susan Feniger Forked. So it's um, based on, the subject is uh, the celebrity chef Susan Feniger and her partner Liz Lockman um, filmed her years ago. And so we're in post for that. I was brought on for post as a producer. So this acts of kind of for hire situation, but we have a composer for that. So mm. that I'm literally like, <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing, I was literally, we're not doing, please don't, please don't want any music. <laughs> Let's just let the composer <laughs> do everything and it will be wonderful and we'll own it. And that's great. So yeah, there's different, everything. And I understand, you know, I, I watch stuff and there's two songs in Uprooted that aren't with the footage that we couldn't get because they were too expensive. Right. I put my foot down. I literally was like, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not right. doing it. That's ridiculous. That's seven seconds or that's 20 seconds. I cannot, yeah. because I, it had got to a point where it just got ridiculous. Mm. I miss them. <laughs> I, like, I watch it and it's like, but only really the creator, because I've watched it so much. Yeah. But hmm. yeah. Um, choices. You have to make those tough choices sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean, you've talked a lot about collaboration. I don't think we need to really talk I mean, collaboration too much is more. key. I mean, that's part of, yeah. yeah, create, collaborate, and inspire is like my three words of what I try and live by. Although I should write it, them somewhere because I've got yeah. post its on my desktop, and one says solutions, and one says seek first to understand. Uh, and the other one is there is no passion in life in playing small in settling mm. for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living so i have those on my can desk we ha can we can we can we borrow those <laughs> we, we, we need we need to we need to have those sitting on our desks too mm. yeah um, it's funny solutions came from the lehman brothers brothers the play did you see that i didn't so good. Yeah. Oh, sorry, in LA. Sorry, the Armisen. And um, Simon Russell Beale's character, right near the beginning, and he said, he kept saying in solutions and solutions because they pivoted when you find their story and you go through their history. It's like oh, yeah. Amazing. And that's why I was just like in my head, I was just like, solutions, solutions. So I just wrote it down and stuck it on my. It's really interesting that you talk that you talk about that because I I used to use the Lehman Brothers story, the history of the Lehman Brothers, as a example. Obviously, because of what happened later on, is it an example of when you, when you when you're doing something authentically and that's true to who you are and you're helping, your your success will follow. When you start to deviate from that path that you know is right, that's when crap happens. It's a really fascinating story, isn't it? Um, yeah. So. I guess, you know, we've, we've heard of some of the stories that you're working on. I want to know, is your musical theatre world going to invade your film world at any point? Are those stories, are you going to tell any musical theatre stories on screen? I would never rule it out. Um, the original double exposure, which wasn't called that then, but um, it started as a feature. They gave me this feature script and I said, let's make a short first. So they made we wrote like cut it down cut it down for a short film which is the double exposure we have their original script was had real elements that could be quite musical um so we're trying to decide whether that's the way we'll go with the feature because mm -hmm. there is a world where she kind of goes into a head so you don't know whether it's reality or in her head um that you could explore that um that obviously raises the budget so it's whether you know it's all budgetary <laughs> at the end of the day yeah. whether that actually excites someone enough that they want to put the money in mm. um i think for musicals because you just have you have to whatever i do i have to do properly and well so you know when you look at nine and the way they shot chicago on as a movie they're all so brilliantly done mm. um 
I would want it on that level, which um, yeah. then I'm sure you have to get studio involved and then it's kind of then I, I'm sure they would just get rid of me or I'd be so low down I wouldn't have any decisions. So you kind of turn into a production manager rather than the producer. So that's that's um, yeah. that's kind of what I'd, I would Well, fear. you describe... You describe yourself as a producer and creative director, you know. So if I think about the word that that is most important of the three, I think it's tapping into your creative vision um, because your your work, whether it's wrangling all of these complicated elements and working out global rights in perpetuity or anything else what comes through in your work is definitely your creativity, um, Thank at you. least for me. I try. Well, um, this has been, this exceeds my expectations about what a conversation with you could be like. And we like, we could talk forever, but we, we, we need to end today's conversation so what we usually do is ask our guests to share a favorite story and it could be it could be a joke i have several because i wrote i saw that question and i was like right i need to think of something well, fantastic and then of course go I, for it i go for like it five or four there was two so in uprooted debbie allen who was um just adorable uh, and lovely and she was working at her desk and we were setting up at the same time so everyone was like creeping around because we did it at the Grey's um, Anatomy studio here in Hollywood and um, uh, then she went off to get ready and she <laughs> said what's this for BBC because she could hear I was British and I was like, oh no it's going to be you know film festivals and blah 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 and she said oh if it's for the big screen <laughs> back up that camera as in <laughs> I'm not going to be that close. So I thought that was hilarious. I'm sure it probably wasn't meant to be funny. So of course we backed it up. Uh, but she also said a really great thing about, um, she had a very good viewpoint of being a woman in the business and in the industry. And she said, I don't come to work as a woman. I come to work as an actor or as an exec producer, or as, you know, in the role of that. She doesn't even go, I'm I'm a woman in this role. I, so I thought that was, that was, showed real strength. Then um, flipping to uh, Mandy Moore, the choreographer. Um, if you go all the way to the end of um, Uprooted and uh, during the credits, we do some outtakes. And um, she tells this brilliant story about John Travolta, meeting John Travolta and how she, she was just so like, oh my God, you're amazing. And he was, uh, <laughs> because of, um, <laughs> because of, you know, Saturday Night Fever and all, you know, all those movies. And he was just like, what? The one where I was a jazz dancer? Um, <laughs> and like, he was just like mind blown that she, that was the movie that she thought was amazing. And um, she was just like, yeah. So her story of that, and she, again, is the most humble, nicest person. Um, and I loved her interview. I love, well, I love many people interview. Uh, Cheetah and Graziella were like this beautiful, I mean, I can watch, I could have watched mm. them all day. And actually they were our first New York interview. And um, just, just amazing. And so that I just, I mean, for there's no particular story. They just were, Cheetah actually wouldn't do it without Grazia. And I was like, well, of course I'll have Graziella if you can put me in touch with Graziella. I'm, I'm not going to say no to Graziella. So that was amazing. And then my last funny story is going back to my first film. So you were two night shoots in this apartment. It was really, really hot. It was September, um, like first week of September. So humid. And uh, Martin, who plays, there's just two people in it. And uh, he had rehearsed, Ben had rehearsed them. And, uh, but his, his trousers or his pants, as we say in America, um, were different for the film than they were for his rehearsal. And so because it was a night shoot, the guy that was helping Ben, he designed and made uh, Bahia's outfit. And then he left, so he made sure they were dressed and he left. They start filming. <laughs> Martin does this move and he completely splits his pants 
all the way up his bum. Like this oh massive my. split. Costume designer's gone. We haven't got any sewing kit. <laughs> the first night of the shoot. And so you're limited on hours because it's we have to do mm. it at night. And uh, <laughs> so we gathered. And he hadn't brought his other trousers. He didn't bring it. That was the only trousers he had. <laughs> so we gaffer taped the trousers and then kind of had to shoot around them <laughs> gaffer that is just it's just a, a miracle product isn't it <laughs> yeah i think of it now and we were just like oh my god oh yeah. brilliant yeah. so so for the uninitiated gaffer tape is sort of the equivalent of duct tape yeah yeah that's the that's the product name isn't it the, the brand name <laughs> what the things you can do with duct tape yes that is that is brilliant well um thank you so so much thank you i really could talk to you all day (laughs) well we're gonna have to do it again um once we once we get to see some of your next um your next work Mm. but we'll we'll let our our audiences know where they can find different um different manifestations of the the films you've produced and we look forward to seeing more thank you thank you so much thank you very much wonderful stuff uh such an interesting journey as well from you know dancing in the uk working in the west end to you know the other side of the world yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now in, and and now, you know, producing films. It's a it's an interesting trajectory. So let's let's talk about what our listeners can take away. I mean there are a couple of things that really jumped out for me. Um the first I guess is about knowing where your story arc is headed. You, the, what's the end point of your story? Um you know, our stories as in, as as people and often the stories we write don't go to plan. And that's fine, right. but you you kind of have to know the direction of travel, and um, even if that's not where you end up, knowing that I think informs make allows you to make better and more informed decisions, strategic decisions. Right, right, and that's actually a really good segue into one of my favorite takeaways in this. Um, we, you and I know this firsthand. Story creation is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that that theme of tenacity, which we've seen in other episodes with other conversations, um, when Lisa talked about some of the struggles as a film producer, you know, you know the arc of your story, you've got a plan, mm. you got all the the cogs and wheels lined up, and then. You know, life is what happens when you're making other plans. <laughs> that famous yeah. John Lennon quote. I mean, I think that um, that tenacity of knowing if if you are sure about the story, whatever happens when you are telling the story isn't going to change the story. You, mm. it, it might change the storytelling a little bit. Yeah, and you know, for our to really draw the dotted line in thick magic marker. Um, you could have a brand story and suddenly you have an unanticipated competitor entering yeah. the market. doesn't mean that your story is going to change. Maybe how you, how and where you tell it changes. Yeah. But you have to have the tenacity to stick to the story that you know is true to your brand. And I love the fact that, you know, she she got that tenacity through auditioning multiple times for roles and yeah. that, that knockback, knockback, knockback. I, I think that kind of relates to, you know, when you're trying to craft a story, get get good feedback that you trust and ex- expect to know, expect a knockback, you know, get critical. Um, and that and that that actually relates to business really, really well, because mm. every pitch you do, every attempt to sell is not going to land the first time no and you know one of the things i see with clients is well we told our story to that prospect and they didn't buy our service and it's like yeah but you have no idea what's changed 
since the last time you told your story. So tell it again. Yeah. Figure out a way to tell that story about why you're different, why you're better, why you're right for a client. That that also links nicely to the the third takeaway, which is um are you telling your audience what they need or want to hear? Don't I guess it's don't underestimate what your audience needs or wants to hear. Quite we you know um Lisa talked about the fact that um a lot of the stories happen off camera and aren't recorded. Um, and I was sort of saying I'd love to hear them, but it's it it's it is it is true that, that you know your audience may want more information on something, and just because you feel it isn't the right thing, isn't necessarily um, the right answer. Right, and part of that is knowing your audience, mm. not assuming you know your audience. Um, Absolutely, really understanding what's keeping them up at night. Um, you know, the the analogies of having been tenacious about telling her story and finally being in the right place at the right time, that her story resonated and she got the role of her her dreams. Mm. That was that was um, for me quite powerful. Yeah. So if you've got piece of the story that you're not sharing keep them somewhere because you might need to share them (laughs) at some point brilliant well it was a great conversation as always um we've got more to come uh in 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 the following weeks um exciting ones yeah absolutely and in the meantime of course you can find more about susan and i and the work we do with brands marketing businesses um, to help them with their content, to help with their marketing strategy um, at Griffin and Skeggs Collaborative or at Iambic Creative. Thanks for listening, everybody, and see you soon. Bye. Bye.